This presentation is from UX Australia 2018, held in Melbourne. For more presentations, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. Hello, everyone. Okay, so we start with the bad news. As mentioned, Hamish is not here. He's the head of accessibility at ANZ. I'm doing his part. Uh, the good news is you guys have chosen to go to a completely unique section here at uh, UX Australia because this is the only one which comes with an element of suspense. I have, I have been on the verge of losing my voice for three days. I have no idea whether I'm going to make it to the end of this. I'm sorry if you can't hear me. Okay, next thing to say uh, is that I've kind of got you here under false pretenses. This title is kind of a lie because I don't actually believe that innovation is a thing that exists. I think innovation is an umbrella term that we tend to use when we might need an improvement or we might need an invention, but we haven't decided which one yet, okay? So there's nothing wrong with improvements, okay? This is uh, OXO Good Grips. These were invented in the 90s by a guy called Sam Farber who saw his wife trying to peel apples and struggling. She had arthritis, her hands couldn't grip the little thingy. He made these, it's an improvement, that's great. But improvements are kind of boring, so let's move on to uh, inventions, yeah? This is a printout from the first ever typewriter. 1808, it was invented in Italy by a guy called Pellegrino Turi. And he created this because he wanted to be able to write letters privately to his friend, Contessa Carolina Fantosi di Fiziano. It's an amazing name, okay? Now, she was blind and she was also married. They wanted to communicate privately. <laughs> he invented this machine. We can't prove that they were lovers. I just prefer the version of the story where they were. Um, someone wrote a book about this. It's amazing. Right, moving on. Uh, telephone. Alexander Graham Bell regarded the telephone as actually being a distraction from his life's work, not his life's work itself. His life's work was in and with deaf people. He grew up around them, he was married to a deaf woman, his mother was deaf, and his interest in audio was actually to create better audio for deaf people to hear with. The bit where one audio receiver was connected to another over distance was a byproduct, and he didn't regard it as being an interesting one either. Right, do we have more? Yes, we do. Can we say comprehensively that Herman Holrath, inventor of the punch card, uh, was dyslexic? No, we can't because the definition, the diagnosis was invented two years after he invented the punch card. We do know that he couldn't spell, that he would jump out the window rather than go to spelling lessons, that he was bad at maths, which is a bit of a bummer if you're an engineer, which he was, and he was complaining about this so hard that he came up with this uh, idea out of frustration to his friend saying, oh, if only a machine could do maths for me, and his friend went, well, make one. You know what engineers are like, you did. This is a, a, a punch card for the 1897 uh, census in the United States. Uh, it was put in competition against human tellers, won by a country mile, and that is the story of the founding of the company IBM. Okay? We're seeing a pattern here, right? You're getting it. Okay, how about this one? Ray Kurtzfield, don't laugh, it's true. Ray Kurtzfield was sitting on a plane one time next to a guy who was blind. And he says to the blind guy, if you could do anything that you can't do now, what would you want to do? The guy says, you know what? I'd like to be able to read a damn book. 
Kurtzfield got off the, the plane, had a bit of a think, put his mind to it, and some amount of time later he invented this, which is the first ever uh, vision-based book reader. For those who can't see it, it's a big flatbed scanner, uh, and it will speak to you, right? It will read the books. What do we get out of this? Yeah, well, kind of, yeah, you got a book reader, it's kind of clunky, but more specifically, you got the first ever flatbed scanner, and you got the first ever text-to-speech synthesis, right? And how much do we use that now all the time? Right, so what's going on here? What's going on? I want to put it to you guys that what's going on is that the existence of the constraints imposed by these impairments is explicitly the thing that is driving them getting better. So this is a photograph of uh, Charles Ames, married to Ray Ames, sitting in one of his chairs. Those of you who know the Ameses will probably know them through their chairs, which are famously like perfectly ergonomic and well-designed for the human body. And one of the things that uh, Charles said is that design depends largely on constraints. He said in the interview, and when the guy asked him to clarify, he said, well, I mean like the sum of all the constraints, you know, how much it costs, what the materials are, what we have to work with, and the, to, to the extent that we can get a good solution to a design problem, it is connected to the designer's willingness not just to work with him, but to embrace these constraints. And I think that's what's happening with these uh, designs that are emerging from solving problems for disabled people. Interesting thing about Ray and Charles Ames, before they did the chairs, they worked on prosthetics legs for returned soldiers uh, after World War II. So that knowledge that went into that perfect understanding of the human body in these able-bodied chairs they made came from disability first. Okay, so this is all good knowledge, but can we do anything with it? Yes, yes we can. In fact, <laughs> I love him, he's laughing. Um, <laughs> in fact, disability to first design is now an emerging trend at a company that you guys know but often won't like. It's Microsoft. Microsoft is all over this. And you're going to find this is all going to go a bit Microsoft fangirl from here. It really is, right? Now, Microsoft have an inclusive design toolkit that I thoroughly recommend for you all. And it's predicated on the maxim, solve for one, extend to many. There's a diagram on this page. It shows four types of impairment, touch, sight, hearing, and speech, and three manifestations, permanent, temporary, situational. I'll read you from the top. Permanent impairment of touch, you're missing an arm. Temporary, you've broken your arm, it's in a sling. <coughs> situational, you're a mum, you've got a baby, you're holding it. All of these people have the same problem. Right? But if we solve for the guy who's missing an arm, we by default solve for the other two as well. Okay, so what are we talking about though? I want to turn this to you guys. Ask yourself the question, for six months or more at some stage of your life, have your everyday activities been restricted by an injury, an illness, or any other medical condition? You will know if that's you. I see nods, I see nods, right? This counts for some people. Guess what? According to the ABS, you have experienced disability. According to the ABS, <coughs> a person has a disability if they report they have a limitation. Ron, could you come up and read this for me, mate? Do, do me a solid. Just, you're, my, you're my reading guy now. Okay. Okay. Uh, a person has a disability if they report they have a limitation, restriction or impairment which has lasted or is likely to last for at least six months and restricts everyday activities. 
Right. You're gonna, he's going to do that again. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well done. Right. So in 2015, about 18.3% of Australians, predominantly physical, about 80%, mainly behavioral or mental, about 20%. You can have both, of course. Easy to see, but what does that actually mean? Well, it means different things depending on age. It's not true to say that one in five Australians has a disability without contextualizing that. Under the age of 15, it's about 7%. Between working age, 15 to 64, rounding out, getting bigger, about 17. And by the time you're 85, by the time you're 90, 85% of 90-year-olds have a disability. Huge props to the 90-year-olds with no disability. That's, that's pretty amazing. So <laughs> it does change with age. We've talked about driving for innovation, but with that number of people, there's another way that disability drives innovation, which is actually the creation of markets. No inventions get off the ground <coughs> without early adopters, right? They need early adopters. And transistors, the little things in your phone and every other doodad that make it miniaturizable, they had a very specific group of early adopters, which is people who use hearing aids. Transistors came out, they were cool and funky, no one knew what to do with them. Hearing deaf community, I don't know if you've seen this, the old hearing aids were like the size of a really big shoebox and you had to carry them around and there was a little plug you had to hold in your ear, your hand got sore, it was really, really annoying, you got a crook in your leg. It was very visible, very embarrassing, really awful stuff. So when transistors came out, no one knew what to do with them, deaf community was all over it. They started making miniaturized hearing aids and because they were doing that, the technology got cheaper, the kinks got worn out, it got less you know, difficult to make, economies of scale came through, and then the rest of the world worked out what to do with it. So early adopters are really important, and disabled people often are in that category. Email has a similar story. Okay, that number doesn't just translate to movement. The other area of economic, and economic movement is actual spending power. Australians with disabilities control about $54 million in discretionary spending every year. That's the money you're not spending on food and rent, right? That's the fun money. And still nobody will make them stuff, okay? Do you know what happens when we scale that up to worldwide? It's eight trillion, yeah? Massive untapped market and people won't make them good stuff, right? They've got money. So if there's one thing that I'd love for you guys to take away from this, when you go back to your workplace and say, we should do disability first design. Don't do it because you're empathetic designers. Don't do it because you want to make the world a better place. Do it because you want to make lots and lots of money, okay? <laughs> Sell that to your product managers. Say, we can make cash, it's untapped. Do it, okay? The money is there, right? Speaking of social areas, right? Economic force isn't the only force disabled people have. Helen Keller staunch socialist, also one of the earliest white supporters of the National Association for Coloured People, okay? We usually tend to think of her as like a little girl running around the place. She was an adult too, and as an adult, she was committed to socialist principles. She wrote in a letter one time, as long as I turn my affairs only to social activities, they call me the high empress of the sightless, the, a modern miracle and a wonder woman. But when I start, and I'm paraphrasing because I left my card in my bag, um, when I start talking about the causes of deafness and blindness in our society, which I believe to be poverty caused by an unjust industrial system, 
well then it's a completely different matter. So we have to be careful with disability. There's a really strong tendency to think that someone with a disability is only going to have a social impact in areas of disability. It's not true, there's a lot more areas where people with disability have things and accurate things to say. Right, we've gone a bit radical, let's stay in the zone, let's stay radical, <laughs> let's do it, okay? All right, let's talk, that in definition I gave you guys before of disability used by the Australian Bureau of Statistics, that's a medical definition. There's another one, which is the social model. Who's heard of it? Hands up if you've heard of it. Oh, such a small number, that was like five or six hands, okay? Right, so in the social model, the impairment is any medical condition that could lead to disability. But disability itself is something different. Disability is a result of the impairments interacting with barriers in the person's environment. What kind of barriers are we talking about? We're talking about physical, attitudinal, social, and communication related. I didn't make that list, people with disabilities did. On the screen there's a photo of a door that's halfway up a wall, there's no steps. Now if I as an able-bodied person, which I am, walk up to that door, I don't blame my legs for not being able to walk up vertical surfaces for the fact that I can't get into the building. I don't blame myself for not being able to jump. No, I blame the building. Similarly, when somebody who is a wheelchair user goes up to a building, and they can't get in because there's no ramp, they don't blame the wheelchair. There's nothing wrong with the wheelchair. They blame the building. That's where the barrier is, yeah? Now, if I was writing this list, I'd put on technological barriers as well. But I didn't write the list. Disabled people did. I'm gonna come back to this, right. At this point, some of you might be thinking, all right, sorry, okay, I'm kind of with you. Slightly long bow, though, right? You know, the idea that the disability is not a part of the person, it's part of the person and the environment combined. I'm not quite buying it, seems a bit weird. Just recently we've had to change the World Health Organization definition of disability and guess what? It's the social model. Come up. <coughs> that one, yes. <laughs> uh, disability is thus not just a health problem, it is a complex phenomenon reflecting the interaction between features of a person's body and features of the society in which he or she lives. Yeah, absolutely, okay. Now, at this point, this is the point where if I had more of a voice, I would actually start shouting. It's gonna sound like that because I'm running low, okay. What drives me absolutely nuts is this. We as UX designers, we are the people who create the environments that people use when they're online. That's what we do. We decide literally and exactly what those environments do. And when we create environments that are not accessible, we literally make people disabled, right? It's not the impairment that is disabling in this context, it's the barrier. And if we create interfaces that contain barriers, the thing that is creating the disability is us, okay? I love this guy, Rowan is the best. Let, let's put that on the transcript, okay? All right, so I was talking. <laughs> All right, 
So I was talking about this with, this is um, a picture of Saqib Sheikh. He's a guy I know from the UK. He's been blind since he was seven years old. And when I was talking about this with him, he, he said to me that when he's talking to people and trying to get them on board with disability first design, um, that the thing that he says to people is that you literally have the ability to make me feel disabled or not. And I, I didn't quite hear him properly because we were on Skype and I, I said to him, Saqib, Sorry, mate, could you say that again? Did, did you say feel disabled or be disabled? And he sighed and he said, well, you know, in public, I would probably say feel, but actually it's be. You know, that is the level of power that we have. We have the power to make people either be or not be disabled. And yet, every time I'm talking about accessibility and universal design with UXs, the conversation tends to start and stop in the same place, which is color contrast ratios, <laughs> right? Okay, all right, not only is that not a particularly important part of accessibility, it's also one which is actually really bad for a lot of people. If you have dyslexia, which 6% of Australians do, high color contrast ratios actually make it harder for you to read the screen, okay? So when we, but it's absolutely maddening. We've gotten to this situation where we as human-centered designers have collectively convinced ourselves that the best way to meet user needs is to comply with a technical standard. When did we decide that? And do you know what? That technical standard, WCAG, it's not even a very good technical standard, okay? This screen has uh, four dates on it. WCAG 1.9, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0, 1.0,
that era is coming to the end. Now, if Hamish was here, he'd be telling you all about this. I've got a screenshot here of the Combank Albert terminals. Right, these things, I like this lady too. Okay, so these things are famous for a pretty nasty reason, which is that a group of vision impaired people sued Combank over these things. There's 88,000 of them in Australia at the moment. We don't know how the court case is gonna wind up yet, but it was so hard to use that vision impaired people literally sued Combank. And if you need no more proof about WCAG than this, that thing is 100% WCAG compliant. Yeah? Take it home, tell your friends. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay, cool. Now, Sakib, who we met before, said he was a lead dev. I didn't say of what. This is a screenshot of an app called Seeing AI. Hands up if you heard of it. Oh, only about 10. Okay, now this thing. The fact that Albert is touchscreen shouldn't make you think that touchscreen is inaccessible by default. Seeing AI is an app you can get on your phone. You can point at pretty much anything. It'll tell you what it is. It's, yeah, I know, right? So it's amazing. So you can use it, you can point in a note, you can point it, you, you're pieing like frozen food out of the cabinet. Is this peas or is it broccoli? Click, take a photo, it will tell you what it is. You can point at someone's face at a meeting and it'll tell you if they're listening to you or not. Are they smiling, are they frowning? Who is that, yeah? We've got people, vision impaired teachers who use it to uh, identify which student they're talking to, things like this. Here's the thing though, do you think that this is restricted to vision impaired people? No, no. English language learners use it. Not, not sure what an object is? Click, it's a chair. Now you know. Sysadmins use it a lot. When they don't want to like, you know, work out what the serial number is on the back of the server, they just kind of stick their phone behind there, take a photo, make it read it out, yeah? Um, that's another one Sackett was actually telling me that his four-year-old niece, and prefer to say, oh, uses it to read herself books. I mean, isn't, yeah, isn't that sweet, right? Okay, but it's the point being, this pattern of creating something to solve a problem that dis impaired pe people experiencing impairments like my poor voice have, okay? That's of use to able-bodied people too. Here's another one, more Microsoft fangirl action. Guy called, uh, most of you will know that Skype can now do uh, translation, right? You talk into Skype and it'll give you a translated version over on the side. It'll do like English to Spanish, Spanish to Greek, whatever you like. And Ted Hart is a hearing impaired engineer at Microsoft and he's the guy who said, um, English to English, please? And they added it. And you know what? Now he can actually use video calling, right? Because whatever somebody says to him will pop up in English on the side. How does this impact you? Well, if you're using Skype for any teleconferencing, guess what? You don't have to take notes or transcriptions anymore, okay? Skype will transcribe it for you. Came out of the deaf community, all right. What else have we got? Okay, so that's kind of a bit from UX. And I'm sorry to say, guys, I don't actually think we're kicking too many goals on this one at the moment. I would like to identify for you, however, an industry that I think is games are nailing it. Games are doing so well. So here is a screenshot from a game that I play a lot of the time called Two Dots. For those of you who can't see, on the left side of the screen is the normal version. It's all very pretty. It's kind of pink, dusty colors. 
little dots, you join them up. And on the right side is the colorblind version, where the background color has disappeared, the colors are more prominent, and the colored shapes, they all have shapes. So as well as being red, it also has a minus sign. As well as being purple, it also has a plus sign. This is a really easy to access uh, piece of functionality, makes it easy. Do I use this? Yes, I do, because when I'm on the train and the sun is on the screen, it's really hard to tell the difference between the colors. Turn on to colorblind, it's easy, I can keep playing. Why do I include this screenshot? Because I'm on level 338 and I want to show off about that. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah? Okay. All right. What's, do we have other examples? Yes, we do. Shadow of the Tomb Raider is an upcoming Lara Croft game. Have a look. Get involved. So interesting. They have 12 different accessibility functions. You can turn the shake on and off. You can set it so you can play one-handed and the camera's always set on Laura's back. You can turn the subtitles on, you can turn them off, you can have them in colour, you can have them not be in colour. You can do basically anything that your particular set of requirements needs. And the thing that I really love about this is all their accessibility functions are on one page, one web page, which also includes the difficulty functions. It's all one continuum. It's all one continuum of personalisation, right? Um, so, you know, if I have like relatively low vision or some kind of cognitive impairment, I can pick the easy version, which shows me a chalk mark of where, the te uh, the, uh, where it is. But if I'm just not very good at shoot 'em ups, which I'm not, I can pick that too. It's accessibility, it's personalization, it's both, because it works for everybody, right? Okay. This thing is a genius. More Microsoft fangirl. More of it, okay. This is the Xbox adapter controller. This is one of the best things I've ever seen. So the controller itself is a, the little white box with two black pads on it. In this photo, we can see uh, a guy who's hooked up with a headset and he's got a controller in one hand and he's got a kind of a joystick on the other. This has seven different ports. Whatever you're able to do, you can plug it into the Xbox adapter controller, it'll work. If it's blowing in a straw, if it's whacking a hand, anything that you've been able to jerry-rig, you can plug into this. And what I love is that Microsoft has actually taken, there's a huge community of, especially in a group called Able Gamers, um, who have been hacking like things like this for years and years and years and saying, oh, please include our mods. And Microsoft eventually just going, you know what, your mods are real good. We're just going to give you something to plug it into. And it works, it's beautiful, it's a lovely piece of work. I haven't seen it used by people without disabilities yet, but I expect we probably will. Okay, so let's have a talk about what's coming next, yeah? So if we can say that over the course of history, disabilities have led to inventions that after the early adopters have got involved end up going mainstream, then we can look at the things which are emerging in disability tech now and have a feel for what's likely to come mainstream later. And what's big in disability tech now? Well, the first big one is prosthetics, yeah? Prosthetics, especially 3D printing and the use of 3D printing for perfectly customised versions of, of things that people need. So that's the first one. The next one is related. The next one is neural controls for prosthesis. I'm showing a photo here of a woman who has some neural inserts plugged into her brain. She is quadriplegic. And with her brain, she is controlling a bionic hand and she's used the hand to reach out, pick up some chocolate, and she's pulling it towards her mouth, right? It's amazing. 
This is the level that we've actually managed to get up to now, okay, with prosthetics. But the thing is, and this is crazy, that's not actually the most impressive piece of bionics that I'm going to show you today. This is. You see that? That is a hand from, I think, just a little bit earlier this year or late last year that is capable of sending sensors back into the brain. This is a photo of a bionic hand holding a cup. And this hand has the ability to send signals back into the wearer's brain about whether the thing they're picking up is hard or soft. And according to people who use it, can't actually tell the difference from when they were picking something up with their actual hand. So we are at the level now where we have prosthesis that we're not able to just control using our minds, but are able to send information back to our minds as well. And I want to put it to you guys that if history is anything to go by, it's very likely that this technology will be coming forward into your lives. With a caveat. With a caveat. Because get a new technology up and into the world, we really need three things, right? We need a user population, we need some emerging technologies, and we also need those early adopters, okay? Now, we know we've got an aging population, so we know that that population is going to have increasing levels of disability. We also know they're baby boomers and they're really rich, okay? So they're going to have a lot of disposable income around one way or the other. But at the moment, right now, Okay, our early adopters, the people who, this isn't quite gelling it because where are the early adopters? There's not that many quadriplegic people in the world. There's not that many amputees in the world. So where are we going to get that, that group of early adopters from? Okay. So next slide. This is the point where I go, all right, in for a penny might as well. Let's see where we go. Okay. This is a slide which has a list on it. Up you come, Rowan. Rowan's going to read us the list. And I'm going to ask you guys to see. I, I want to see who giggles first. Who is the first person who knows which group were the early adopters for the technologies? Or she's got it. Technologies on the screen. Can you do it? I'll just wait. Oh, here you go. I can. Oh, I can do it from here. Oh, uh, cool. So, <laughs> secure online payment systems, streaming video, video chat, digital rights management, broadband. Anecdotally, long-distance phone calls, pay-per-view, camcorders, VHS players home movie projectors, answering machines, cinema, photography, and print. Who's got it? You know. Yes, it's sex. That's right. <laughs> it's the sex industry. And I can actually, I do, I do have sources for all of these. Some of you are going to be sitting there going, okay, okay, okay. Answering machines, though. The answer to that one uh, is in the 1950s when they were incredibly expensive, they were mostly bought by sex workers who couldn't afford to lose bookings, but who couldn't pick up the phone while they were at work, yeah? Okay, so, um, <laughs> I know, I know. I do have a source for that, okay? I have a source for all of them. But all of these technologies were demonstrably driven first at some level by either sex industry people or just sex enthusiasts, right? In the case of the camcorders. So, sex comes in as the early adopter, they start to buy the products when they're still expensive and difficult and they don't work properly and eventually it goes mainstream and it's normalised and the pattern repeats itself a bit later. I don't want to put too fine a point. Basically what I'm saying here is if the Segway had have had a sexual application, 
you would all probably be writing one, okay? Yeah? All right. So my current theory, uh, and I might be right, I might be wrong, who knows, but my current theory is that the next really significant technology will not necessarily be, but is more than slightly likely to emerge from sex tech for disability. That's what I pick for where you should be putting your investments. <laughs> yeah. I know it's hilarious. I'm also completely serious. I made it to the end of the talk. Who has questions? Ah. <laughs> <coughs> okay. All right. Hi. There's going to be like two of these. How much time is left, please? Uh, oh, my God. Okay. Okay, um, currently I'm working on a project for um, front of house staff members inside Hospitali, where we're considering uh, several disabilities we want to solve for. Yeah. Uh, this not only makes the project more expensive, but also uh, makes it more difficult to develop. Um, how far or when would you consider it's good enough? Uh, or rephrasing this, how many features would you consider the minimum acceptable? Features? Yeah, well, not features. Um. That's cool. Right, yeah. so I think there's part of the answer for me there um, really has to do with where are you including disability because I think there's, there's two areas. You can use disability in your discovery research, which is what I think there's a very strong case for doing, or you can do it in your testing, right? And those are opposite ends of the design process. So if you've already built something, you just want to test it, then if you've set your criteria, great, off you go. Should you choose to investigate the needs of people with disabilities in the discovery phase, uh, you might actually end up with a different set of features. I don't know. Yeah. Anyone else for questions? Yeah. Thanks for that, Zoe. That mm -hmm. was absolutely fantastic. Um, completely take your point around WCAG. <laughs> We've all been there and, you know, definitely slow but improving. But my, what my question actually re revolves around is, is that this notion, I guess, of designing for extremes and using these case studies mm -hmm. to inspire design. Yep. What I often find is that a lot of it sort of falls down in not just the design stage, but everything around it from research through to development testing and everything mm -hmm. beyond. Can you point us to any useful tool sets in absence of a better WCAG to help across all of those contributors to this problem? All right, easy answer. Microsoft Inclusive Design Toolkit, look it up. It's, it's, it's freely available, anyone can use it. Uh, it's really best practice material. There's uh, a bunch, it doesn't stop with the design for one extent to many. There's a four stage process that they walk you through of identifying barriers. Um, different ways of getting around it. I, I think that's where I would start at the moment, yeah. So Microsoft are using this to make money, okay? Be really, really clear about that. They're not using it because they want a touchy-feely, good type of environment. It's because historically it's been a really big money spinner for them. And it can be for you too. Make money, yes, disability first. Yeah, okay. Um, I think I know the answer to the question, but I'll ask you anyway. Um, why do you think the gaming industry is so far ahead oh compared to anything else? 
Um, I think, okay, so there's a couple of things here. One is they've been dealing with uh, a wider variety of mechanics for a longer time, okay? So people who are engaging with a game using a console are using a different set of gestures from somebody using a mouse just to start with. And also in game like this, um, running around and shooting things, okay, is actually a different gesture set from like just kind of moving things around if you're playing solitaire even, okay, or tapping on a screen. So interaction design is I think much deeper in game design because they have to cater to more interactions. You know, we're basically having people move from page to page at their own speed, um, which is, it's, so they've, they've had to, I think, more. And it's worth pointing out that game design wasn't very good at this for a long time, but they're getting much better and they're getting better so fast, it's actually kind of a head spin, yeah. Mm. Yeah. I really enjoyed some of the concepts that you've been, uh, you spoke about mm -hmm. today. And I'm just wondering, would you be able to provide any um, where or any resources where I could explore these concepts further? <laughs> oh my. Um, look, I think that there's a yes with a no. Every second day that I'm on Twitter at the moment, someone from my accessibility network is talking about the book that they're literally about to publish. And I'm sitting there going, come on, come on, come on, come on, my talk is next week. Um, so there's, I think there's actually a wave about to break on this one, if you see what I mean. Um, I can tell you some of the books that are coming out, but they haven't come out yet. Yeah, they're on the way. I, yeah, be ahead of the curve, just build it first. Scott Rippon, RXP Services. Thanks Hi. so much for a brilliant talk. Mm -hmm. um, I totally agree with WCAG and uh, how compliance is, should not be the be-all and end-all. Mm -hmm. And you could meet something that's compliant, as you showed, that is yeah. totally inaccessible. Mm -hmm. what, what is the, the, the best path or the way forward that you, you think the UX community should mm -hmm. be, be heading in? I would ideally, uh, in a perfect world, I would like to see people with impairments to be included at the discovery stage of projects, because that's where we find out what the user needs are. Money is tight, things are difficult, but I, I think that like most of the people I know, and Tim would know more about this even than I would, if he's still in the room, I can't see him. Um, but uh, there's a, one of the nice things about uh, dealing with people who have impairments is they're completely, that will tell you what they think. You contact the Royal Society of the Blind um, and see if anyone's willing to come in. You'll, you'll probably find a couple of people, yeah? Hmm. Yeah, so there's that as well. I mean, just listening. Like, if someone starts griping, what are they actually griping about? Can you get in touch? Can you find out? Hmm. Yeah. Um, so my question is around uh, how, how do we sort of um, make the, the empathy for accessibility more widespread without um, the threat of um, being sued? Um, is there clear business cases where um, people have taken accessibility into um, account and it's made a dramatic um, impact on the bottom line? Something that companies can understand without um, going through compliance as a driver for mm -hmm. change? Yep, look, on this one I'm actually probably, it's gonna happen again, I'm probably gonna direct you back to Microsoft because they've been using this disability-first design for, for a little while. It's really kind of 
taking off a, a bit more now, but they're, they're using it not because they want to be lovely people, they're using it because they want to make more money from their products. And they get more out of it this way. Um, yeah, so if you consider on the Xbox, if you're deaf and you're an Xbox user, it's really, you can't run a, a you can't lead a rate, right? Because everyone's on the headphones, okay? And it's really difficult, like you, you can't follow what's going on, you can't have the headphone going. What's the answer to this? Well, you need a better keyboard, right? How bad are keyboards on uh, gaming consoles? They're awful. You've got to like toggle around with the little doodads. It's terrible stuff. Okay, if you can improve that, then the Xbox. If you can get a better keyboard onto an Xbox that you, is good enough that you could use leading a raid, okay, you've all of a sudden actually got a, a feature which is significantly better than your competitor, who's still on the dinky little doodad. Now, I actually have a friend. Um, who does gaming in an all-deaf, what are they called, guild, group, posse, um, that he, <laughs> I don't know, but yeah, he, he actually games with an all-deaf group just because he hates the shouty culture. Now, it's, it's, it's fine, like, you know, they're a very inclusive group, they don't mind that he's not deaf, he's, he's cool, but that's the kind of thing that can turn into a value proposition, yeah, and a product differentiator in, in a market where the competition is pretty fierce. Um, what are your thoughts? Yeah. Oh, hello. Uh, about the role of augmented reality and virtual reality. Oh, in Sobe, Because wow. I haven't seen many examples of that, but. Yeah. Okay. That's a really interesting one. Um, so, I don't know if there's anyone uh, in the room at the moment who has uh, motor control as as part of their impairments, but um, this one's actually kind of weirdly controversial uh, because in virtual reality we're, we're seeing instances now where people are using VR as a way of reteaching some of their uh, nerves to do things they didn't used to do. So people who have levels of paralysis, um, who are using VR goggles of like climbing up a mountain and just pretending it to do it to, to teach a leg to do something it didn't used to do, which is absolutely wild. Does it work for everybody? Absolutely not. Does it work for some people? Yes. Um, it's really contingent, but that's an example. And I mean, I could imagine that being at the gym at some point, right? We've identified that you have weak glutes. Here, put on your VR helmet, you're going to scale Kilimanjaro. No? It's like, well, you laugh, but you could imagine it, right? Yeah. Mm. Well, that's all we've got time for. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you for listening to this presentation from UX Australia 2018. For more presentations, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.